Welcome to the January 2019 podcast for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. My name is Dr. Kelly Tappenden. I'm editor-in-chief of JPEN and professor and head of nutrition and kinesiology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. The paper we're going to be discussing today is very important. Now, GLIM is an acronym you might not be familiar with. GLIM stands for the Global Leadership Initiative on Malnutrition. So with that said, we'll be discussing today the GLIM criteria for the diagnosis of malnutrition, a consensus report from the global clinical nutrition community. And my guest today is Dr. Gordon Jensen, who is Senior Associate Dean for Research and Professor of Medicine and Nutrition at the University of Vermont. He'll be representing or speaking on behalf of the other GLIM participants who are authors on the paper that you can find published in the January 19 issue of JPEN. Welcome, Dr. Johnson. Well, thank you so much. I'll give you a quickie uh, overview here of what the uh, GLIM criteria for the Diagnosis of Malnutrition Consensus Report is about. This consensus uh, represents a labor of love for many individuals uh, and I over the past several years. And the overriding concern has been that on a, a global level, country level, regional level, that there's tremendous variation across the globe in approaches to the diagnosis of, of malnutrition. This creates many problems, but perhaps most uh, important to many of us is that it means that it's very difficult to compare malnutrition prevalence to test interventions, monitor outcomes on a global scale. Uh, it's really very important that we develop a common malnutrition language that spans the globe, that we use common criteria uh, so that we can really begin to move nutrition forward on a global scale. Now, the focus of this particular initiative is on adult malnutrition in clinical care settings. But of course, some of the implications of this consensus effort uh, may well prove to, to reach even further in scope. When we first began this initiative, I think many folks thought it would be impossible, uh, most certainly uh, very challenging, and it was that. And of course, what we found was that everyone was really very invested in their own uh, regional uh, approaches and were reluctant to consider changes. So we carefully built a global consensus group that included representatives from Pensa, from Philampi, uh, ESPEN, and ESPEN, as well as an additional selected participants who brought further expertise or global diversity to the effort. And in fact, the uh, published consensus paper includes uh, some 35 authors representing a very diverse range of expertise and training uh, from across the globe. When we began to look at the approaches that are used uh, across the globe to diagnose malnutrition, we quickly recognized that there were a number of criteria that were really common to them all. You can think of them as core criteria, if, we, if you will. Uh, and we were confident that we could get people around their uh, use. And uh, we conducted a ballot 
uh, among the uh, GLIM participants and ask them to rank the value and importance of the criteria that are used to diagnose malnutrition across the globe. And we arrived at some uh, core criteria that, again, are really common to all the approaches that we could get everyone strongly uh, invested in. And they included uh, three phenotypic criteria, one being weight loss, the second low body mass, and the third reduced muscle mass, as well as two etiologic criteria, uh, including reduced food intake or assimilation, and also disease burden or underlying inflammatory uh, condition. And then the consensus went further to suggest that at least one phenotypic criteria and one etiologic criterion would be required for malnutrition diagnosis. There was also a very strong uh, consensus that the uh, initial step in approach to, to malnutrition should be uh, screening for malnutrition risk using a validated screening tool, then apply uh, the phenotypic and etiologic uh, assessment criteria that I just described, and then for those that meet the criteria for malnutrition diagnosis, that uh, we recommended that the severity of malnutrition be determined on the basis of consensus criteria uh, using the phenotypic uh, objective criteria only. So to sum it up, this was released uh, on an electronic basis back in uh, September 2018. There has been tremendous global interest, uh, lots of questions, lots of comments, a lot of excitement around this. Uh, what we see as the key next steps are to continue to work with the leading nutrition professional societies, and we've been in close contact with uh, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics. We've been in communication with the American Society uh, for Nutrition, and we've also been in close touch with our colleagues in the sarcopenia and cachexia fields, because there's a likelihood that uh, our proposed approach can also be used to diagnose malnutrition in patients who suffer uh, sarcopenia or cachexia. We look forward to promoting dissemination and, and rigorous validation studies and feedback, and really envision this to be a continuous process where criteria could be reconsidered every three to five years, and of course our hope is ultimately to live global sharing of this type of data where we can actually compare, again, prevalence and test interventions and monitor outcomes, all with an eye towards uh, promoting better care and outcomes for patients throughout the world. So that's a quick summary for you. Thanks, that's a great summary. Now, let me just ask for, uh, the interest of all of us who may be here in the United States or perhaps Canada. Tell us about some of the variation that you found amongst the international participants in the capabilities that they had for diagnosing malnutrition, the priority that it might be within their system. Uh, you know, what, what was that variation that you speak to? Yeah, there, there is tremendous variation as you go around the globe, and I've been very fortunate to really have colleagues uh, throughout the world in clinical nutrition, and so have really, you know, have a good handle on the, the kind of diversity and variability. 
uh, and I would say first and foremost, just in terms of resources and, and expertise that may be available. You know, and an example I would give, you know, we had colleagues in some regions of the world who were keen that, you know, everyone should undergo body composition uh, analysis using uh, imaging technologies, you know, uh, DEXA, MRI, CT scanning, and so forth. And of course, while that is commendable, there are many parts of the world where such technologies are not readily available uh, at all. And so, you know, we needed to make accommodation in GLIM for also using, you know, physical examination in an attempt to uh, ascertain muscle mass. So that kind of, you know, whatever we came up with for GLIM needed to be really quite flexible. And of course, the kinds of nutrition professionals and the roles that they play uh, vary considerably throughout the world. You know, a very important message that we included in the GLIM consensus is a key role for dietitians in conducting more comprehensive nutrition assessment of patients who might be identified as malnourished using the GLIM criteria, where, and of course, you know, there are other regions of the globe where dietitians operating at that level of expertise may often not be readily uh, available or playing a different role. And so, the, you know, the, the approaches that we have outlined here have deliberately been envisioned as relatively simple, requiring uh, some training and expertise, but, you know, I wouldn't for a moment contend that a diagnosis of malnutrition using the GLM criteria is not comprehensive nutrition assessment. That is a, a further step where input from a skilled nutrition professional is most certainly appropriate. So, you know, it's those sorts of diversity of differences in, a, in approach to diagnosis, resources available, expertise available uh, that one sees as you look across the globe. But again, remarkably, these core criteria, you know, really are common to really all the key leading approaches to diagnosing malnutrition. Let's dig in a little deeper into your latter comments, because the GLIM criteria do differ so greatly from that which you also have leadership on being the Academy Aspen uh, criteria for malnutrition, where there's six factors. There's a much more comprehensive assessment, as you just said. So when you look at the two approaches, clearly one recognizes that not all areas in the world are able to do the comprehensive assessment, but what patients are at risk for being missed uh, using just one or one of each of the phenotypic or etiological symptoms uh, that's being proposed by the international community? Right. So what, what I would say, and of course, part of the beauty of the GLM approach is that it is not in any way intended to exclude people also applying additional criteria of regional uh, preference or interest. And this is where it's going to become very important to first off test the GLM criteria in large existing databases, which we are gearing up to do uh, at present, and we actually have uh, multiple regions throughout the globe who've expressed interest in participating in that process. And then, of course, the step further is to test them in prospective cohorts. 
I would contend, and this is where it gets very interesting, is that if you look at uh, the various uh, approaches to diagnosing malnutrition, uh, some of them with more variables than, than GLIM, that in fact, there's a high likelihood that key core drivers, key core criteria are in fact often driving the diagnosis. And uh, you know, one way of thinking about this is what is the minimum data set necessary to accurately and reliably diagnose malnutrition? And uh, as you alluded to, it may be that some of the additional criteria bring additional useful information. So we're very interested in learning ultimately what the differences between these approaches may be. I think as an example, in terms of predicting adverse outcomes among patients, the key core criteria are likely to have virtually identical utility in predicting adverse outcomes as the uh, other approaches because you know key predictors are things like weight loss, like the presence of underlying disease and inflammation. Things like that have tremendous prognostic import. But of course, what ultimately really matters is our ability to not only recognize malnutrition, diagnose it appropriately, but of course, the real test is you want to be able to do that in patients that you can intervene upon to promote a better outcome. And of course, that's the, you know, the, the real long-term and very challenging objective is to demonstrate that. So you know, what I would ultimately say about this is that it is a work in progress. Uh, I think on a global scale, it is very important for us to have a common approach, uh, and that's where GLIM comes in. And what I'm hoping for, you know, over the short run or for folks with interest in doing this is uh, irrespective of, you know, you want, or you want to use the uh, Academy Aspen approach or, or SGA, that one could also begin to accrue data that specifically addresses the GLIM phenotypic and etiologic criteria so that we can begin to, to indeed prospectively look at these uh, outcomes. And the beauty of it is, since these criteria are largely in place already in these existing tools, it's not an incremental workload. If you compare the uh, Academy Aspen tool to GLIM, the most fundamental difference is the presence of low BMI uh, in the GLIM tool and muscle mass in the GLIM tool. Uh, whereas the Academy Aspen tool doesn't have low BMI and it actually proposes a hand grip strength as a uh, measure of muscle function. Though in relation to the latter there, GLIM does propose assessment of muscle function and strength as a supportive measure, and of course, particularly so if a diagnosis of sarcopenia is being considered. So for the moment, I consider these complementary approaches and what we need now is the rigorous work to uh, discern, you know, effectively what is the minimum data set and then what additional comprehensive assessment is appropriate. So for dietitians, practicing dietitians in the U.S., let's put them in a hospital-based system, you would still encourage them to be using the Academy Aspen criteria? Or can yeah. they use this and say, I don't need to do all those anymore? 
Right. Now, I, for the moment, I would prefer that people continue to do that. Obviously, I, I personally was very invested in, in assisting with the development of that approach. Uh, and unless I say, if they have interest, I would encourage them to go ahead and document, you know, whether this is electronic record consultation, whatever you're doing, uh, I would go ahead and record BMI and then some impression of, of muscle mass. And of course, you know, physical exam will, will be quite suitable for that, or one can do anthropometrics with mid-arm muscle circumference. Uh, if you can also record those additional measures, uh, what that will ultimately do is one, going forward, we can begin to learn their utility as well. And as an example, I think it's likely that going forward, we will see things drop out of a, a number of the existing approaches as ultimately not bringing enough added value and not needing to be part of a, a, a minimum data set. And then in addition, you know, I think one of the most exciting breakthroughs is I want to see access to small, portable, bedside and clinic-based body composition equipment that doesn't cost an arm and a leg. And of course, that could be a game changer for us all because it is going to turn out that uh, you know, muscle mass and function, I think, are going to be very important measures. Dr. Jensen, I want to thank you for your leadership in the area. It's, it's not even a decade ago since you published your etiology-based uh, paper on diagnosing malnutrition, and we've come so very far since then, and I think it's a real exciting time looking forward and trying to understand the number of factors that are going to be important. Uh, so thank you for staying in the conversation, for leading it and extending it across the globe. Well, thank, thank you so much. And I know, you know, I have many colleagues out there who just think that this has just taken, you know, an inordinate amount of time and how come we don't have this all sorted out already. In reality, I, I, I do agree. I think we've been, we've been moving forward quickly and it has been a tremendous uh, challenge, but I think we're getting closer and closer. Absolutely. For those of you who have not yet read Dr. Jensen's paper, please do go to the January 2019 issue of JPEN and read the paper on the GLIM consensus. Thanks very much. <laughs>